Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Investigative Economics Podcast. I'm your host, uh, Llewellyn Jones. Uh, today's episode is episode 11, part two in our financial crisis series. Uh, we might have a number of these, uh, as we have a lot of stories on the subject to talk about, uh, a lot of stories on the site about it. It's been a long time in the making. We gave a preview of sort of all of the stories that we've talked about uh, on investigative economics related to the financial crisis. Um and this is this is an interesting one. This one's episode is all about Acorn, um, but not just Acorn. Acorn's just sort of the the sort of example, sort of the lead in to a lot of other topics. Um, and you're sort of like, wow, what is you know Acorn really? It was kind of a footnote in the world of the financial crisis that there are all these other major things. These are major economic uh, swings that happened between 2007 2008 into 2009 as well, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, housing prices and credit default swaps and mortgage-backed securities and just every other aspect of the economy, employment that, uh, you know, uh, took a huge hit. Um, So ACORN, what was that about even, you know, the Association for Community Organizers uh, that, you know, oh, is this, this whole story, the scandal where, uh, Project Veritas uh, did a undercover sting where they pretended to be a pimp and a prostitute going into this nonprofit that's ostensibly help, there to help you know people get housing to afford you know lower income housing advocates and you know what they what they do they ostensibly do is they you know help people fill out the paperwork how to apply for you know subsidized housing HUD you know, grants things like that. Uh, and, you know, the, the, what Project Veritas sort of in their video was saying was like, look at this, you know, here's uh, this nonprofit helping out uh, criminals, you know, a pimp, pimp and a prostitute. And, but in, but uh, Acorn's response was just like, what are you talking about? The, the video doesn't show us doing anything. We, sure, we talked to them, but we didn't help them uh, commit any crimes or anything like that. You know, they talked to anybody. So... Uh, and the video just didn't show any kind of scandal. It was all sort of nothing. But, uh, you know, the hammer came down on Acorn anyhow. They lost uh, all of their government, government funding in the process. So, so, I mean, who cares? Like, what does that even have anything to, anything to do with anything? It does, maybe it's not even related to the financial crisis. It's just something that happened that was related to housing around the same time. But it is very, very relevant. Um, you know, we'll come back to Acorn in just a second. So, because one aspect that will we'll tie it all in is collateralized debt obligations, CDOs. If you remember correctly, these were uh, these are part of, you know, the, between the mortgage-backed securities and the credit default swaps, collateralized debt obligations, you know, were supposedly part of that domino effect of like, you know, the housing market fell, houses weren't worth anything anymore. And so the mortgage-backed securities that they were wrapped into that were bought up by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and sold off in tranches to investors, uh, and those could be repackaged and sold as collateralized debt obligations, and those could be bet against as credit default swaps. Kind of this hairy chain of uh, connections that, you know, so like when the underlying value of the housing market fell apart, all these other uh, dominoes 
fell as well. That's the just sort of general understanding of the, the financial crisis collapse. The, and, you know, a lot of them were subprime mortgages. Um, all these derivatives turned the medium-sized problem of the housing market collapse into a massive one. It, what, it just all these things fell apart at the same time. And, you know, people always talked about, oh, it's deregulation of of investing that happened. The Chinese wall went down. And we, I, I wrote some about that, sort of like how that actually happened. Uh, you know, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, the GLBA in 1999, eliminates the Chinese wall um, between commercial and investment banking that had existed since 1929. It wasn't completely removed, but it allowed this one aspect of it. It actually allowed collateralized debt obligations to exist, to, to come into formation. Because uh, and it goes back to uh, what's now Citigroup was Citibank in 1929, and one of the sub scandals of 1929's financial uh, collapse was that uh, that they were selling foreign bonds that they themselves knew were terrible. I think some they were Peruvian bonds or something like that, and that they were selling them and betting against them at the same time, and that's that's sort of like. They thought that this was an example of, you know, a conflict of interest that a bank shouldn't be able to, you know, uh, be, you know, offer securities while, uh, you know, selling securities while also investing against them. Uh, so and there's a Chinese wall, the sort of separation of what they could what a bank could do. It's it split up J.P. Morgan into J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley. Um, and a lot of other things changed since, since then. Um and that the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act of 1999 uh, removed some of those limitations so that a bank could create the security, a collateralized debt obligation, and they could invest against it in a, as a credit default swap. Um, and so, and, and so and, uh, it's been talked about many times that how, how influential uh, collateralized CDOs were to the collapse that and Bear Stearns, who will come up and all be, be very tied into a lot of other things. Um, their collapse was heavily tied into, they were heavily invested in CDOs, uh, and potentially that led to a lot of their failures. You know, they went from being one of the biggest investors, you know, you know, not, not a major bank, but a huge, huge investor at the time to. Their their stock uh, they they were being bought up by J P Morgan for pennies on the dollar after the crash, um, so the de- deregulation of CDOs, uh, you know, led to just a huge investment in them. the The market for CDOs just blew up, and yeah, that's been talked about tons about, and that's you know why people think it's sort of related to the collapse of the markets that. Um, you know, it would top out at almost 500 billion in value in 2007, uh, which is quite a bit. Um, and there's a lot of criticism of it. Uh, economists like uh, Paul Krugman, George Soros were all talking about like this is, you know, they need to be regulated. They need to be banned. This is uh, the free market one run wild. Somebody needs to put a stop to this. And the sort of the under, underlying idea about you know the sort of criticism of how the, of the banks in in creating the crisis was that they could like a company like Countrywide could just hand out subprime mortgages 
with high interest rates to low uh, low quality uh, borrowers, um, and they wouldn't be able to pay back those loans. Uh, those loans would be back, uh, you know, put into the mortgage-backed securities. They'd go into the CDOs and, and sold to investors. Uh, and then the banks would use credit default swaps to bet against the, the CDO. Um, and so, and the best example of this, of course, is the Abacus deal, the Goldman Sachs Abacus deal, where Goldman Sachs creates a synthetic CDO. It's a CDO which actually, they don't actually own the mortgage-backed security that, that's wrapped into that CDO. It's just sort of like, you ever heard of a stranger originated insurance it's kind of like that where you could take out insurance and insurance in a way is just like a bet it's sort of saying like i'm going to put money if uh if it's life insurance you're sort of betting to say like i if if i die you know i'm betting that i will die and therefore uh it, when i die i will get a huge payout you're sort of betting on your death <laughs> and if but you don't you don't actually want to win as the the one with life insurance but you know uh you can describe it as a bet with insurance but of course it's sort of a, you know sort of just balancing risk um but stranger originated insurance which used to be a thing is that you could take out a life insurance policy on somebody else not yourself um that you could say that this random person i believe i'll pay $100 a month uh, and I will get paid, you know, a huge uh, bundle of money if that person dies. Um, the same way it would happen if, if it was you, but, you know, for somebody else. Um, this is totally, I mean, this, you know, it's complete skullduggery. It's, you know, this is the plot of a uh, um, film noir movie for sure. It, there probably were a few because you could easily just take out a life insurance policy on somebody you don't know, murder them. And then walk away with a lot of money somehow. Maybe it's not that easy, but it just it seems like the potential for uh, horrible things are quite high. And um, there's an anecdotal story about uh, the the father of the woman that uh, John Edwards, the the president, Democratic presidential candidate at the time, uh, he had an affair with um, is a you know camera woman. And I, I apologize if I'm getting these, you know, this is uh, I, this is a long time that I read about this. But her father was actually brought up on charges related to stranger-originated insurance for a horse race, uh, so, um, uh, a racehorse uh, that, and, you know, racehorses are, can be worth a huge amount of money and people can take insurance uh, claim, uh, plans out on a racehorse, just like, you know, uh, a Fabergé egg or something like that. And that... The horse was killed, um, and they said that it was an accidental death, but they actually just killed the horse itself just to, uh, to get the insurance off of it. Uh, I mean, that's maybe not a stranger-originated insurance, but that's sort of, like, sort of why the whole idea of like you shouldn't be able to take out a bet on something that you can control. Uh, well, you can see how things could go a little awry. Anyhow back to the abacus deal that uh that goldman sachs creates this deal which is a, a collateralized debt ob obligation a cdo a synthetic one they don't own the mortgage-backed securities uh, that it's uh that it's packaged that that are packaged into it and uh it had uh, billionaire investors like john paulson who used to be ahead of uh, goldman sachs and george soros which is interesting because george soros was complaining about cdos 
Um, and uh, Paulson then bet against the CDO using a credit default swap. So he puts together this package, says, hey, everybody, you should buy this, while at the same time knowing that it might be garbage and I'm going to bet against it. So, um, you know, it just seems like sort of direct fraud right there. Um, so many of the underlying mortgages defaulted that over $300 million was paid out on that credit default swap loan. Uh, it earned Paulson three to four billion, possibly the largest single year payday in Wall Street history. I mean, that guy made a lot of money on it. Um, and Goldman would eventually be fined 550 million for misleading investors about their role in the deal by not telling them that uh, he had compiled the securities in the CDL. So I, I think he, when he was investing it in it through the, the um, through the credit default swap, he was doing it through Paulson and Company. Uh, uh, and, uh, which is, I'm trying to remember what his, he used to be with Goldman Sachs, but then he was in, you know, having the smaller investment company that he was doing the deal through, but Goldman Sachs set up the deal. Goldman Sachs had defended, uh, setting it up because they themselves had actually invested millions of its own money in the CDO that they lost. And there was like Paulson that really just made out. Um, and that's the, you know, that's the, uh, the big short if it, the, that the movie is kind of a reference to. But as we know from the previous podcast episode is that the housing market has come back as if nothing happened. Uh, um, the home prices have surpassed what they were at the top of the 2007 market. And so it's sort of like, you know, that whole, that whole abacus deal, how did that get created I mean, if they had just held on to it, uh, you know, for five, ten years, uh, ten more years, would that uh, that credit default swap would have been worthless, and you know, Paulson would have been lost that much money instead of gained it. And sort of like, what exactly happened there? Um, and CDOs have also come back. If, if if they were the bet noir or one of the bet noirs of the financial crisis. They've come back and nobody seems to have, everybody has collective amnesia about how bad they were. Uh, they're not as, as back to what they were. Uh, in 2017, there were almost $300 billion worth of CDOs were issued. That's not, um, that's not totally what it was. Uh, at, it was about $500 billion um, uh, at the top of the market in 2006 uh, or 2006, 2007. Um, this is based on SIFMA data. Um, so it's not back to where it was, but it's pretty gosh darn close. Uh, considering if, you know, all the, the sort of chicken little saying that like, oh my God, that was, that was so horrible. Then, you know, uh, you know, is it, is it just as horrible, almost as horrible right now? And the, just the daily trading volume of CDOs is, has surpassed it. I mean, it's not the, the, the sort of total value of CDOs, but just they are being, people are buying and selling them back and forth uh, much more so than they were during the financial crisis. It's about uh, it's over twice uh, what it was back then. Um, repercussions have yet to be felt. I mean, you know, right now, I mean, things can certainly change. I, I don't have a complete grasp of the current housing market. You know, interest rates are going up or have been up uh, for some time now, and uh, that could have an effect on things. I mean, I, to be honest, the, the whole financial crisis seemed like it was there to scare people from raising interest rates. 
uh, be like, look what happened when they raised interest rates. And they, they wouldn't say that in public because nobody actually talked about how interest rates were raised and are probably the key to what started the crisis. But uh, you could imagine sort of somebody talking about like, look what happened last time interest rates were raised. Now, and don't do it again. You'll crash the market. Um, uh, but they have come up that no, no market crashes happen, at least yet. Um, and I mentioned Bear Stearns before about, and they were leaned, they leaned heavily on CDOs and, and subprime lending. Uh, 69% of their portfolio, 18.3 billion worth of, uh, CDOs, uh, was 18, 18.3 billion worth of CDOs was in their portfolio. Uh, and that's based on a report from JP Morgan at the time. Uh, and they were the first ones to offer, uh, along with this other bank, First Union, to offer Community Reinvestment Act loans. We'll talk about what those are in a second, because that, that didn't get mentioned very much. Uh, it's in, in, uh, in Congress, there's, uh, there's all constant debates about sort of reforming the Community Reinvestment Act. Uh, th those loans didn't get talked about as much as subprime loans. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. J.P. Morgan, I mentioned before, would go on to buy Bear Stearns like for pennies on the dollar, um, whereas, uh, yeah, which is like it just it as a monumental collapse. It went from everything to nothing, uh, and really, this is a, this is a pretty smart, savvy Wall Street investment firm that collapsed into nothing and just out of nowhere. How could it, it went from having so much billions of dollars, and they just didn't see the risk. Um, Although, you know, to be fair, the executives uh, made tons and tons of money before all of that, that uh, they made billions during in the few years before the financial collapse. So uh, don't weep for them, for sure. Um, so one thing to think about that's uh, changed from 2007, 2008, is that the market for commercial mortgage-backed securities no longer exists. That... Uh, and this doesn't get talked about in uh, the story of the financial crisis, is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are sort of got a lot of blame that saying that they were sort of willy-nilly just buying up these loans, uh, these mortgages, and uh, putting their stamp of approval before sort of sending them out to the market for everybody to invest in. And what happened was that uh, you can, based on numbers, you can see that they were buying up a whole bunch of these loans what they don't say is that a large majority of those loans were um, sort of like refinance loans, people taking out, you know, like a home equity loan because interest rates are low, taking money out of their house maybe to do uh, to make a fix it up, things like that. Sort of, but based on a very massive asset, which is their home, their home's value, which certainly has some value in it, and that that was sort of, you know, that's a huge part of the market. Like, why is that such a risky thing? That uh, For a lot of those loans, you don't even need paperwork for it because you already have this asset you're, that already exists. I mean, you just need to prove that the, the house is still there. Um, I remember when I did a home equity loan, you just need to have somebody come by and do, and it's a pretty uh, simple assessment. They just need to make sure that, you know, the house is in good standing. It's not completely abandoned uh, so that it's worth you know, at least, you know, $50,000 to whoever, how much, you know, how many hundreds of thousand dollars it could uh, be worth. Um, and that, uh, 
So that's a large part of the loans that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were approving of. Not that risky. So I mean, the whole idea that those are the loans that caused a collapse in the market doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but once the interest rates started going up, they stopped approving a lot of these loans, or, or not stopped approving them. Make, it sounds like they were like refusing to approve them. But a lot of these loans, uh, they weren't buying up as many loans as they had been. Like at a time, um, was it uh, $17.5 billion worth of uh, loans were uh, purchased by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in two, 2003? And it started going down from there. But what you see in 2005, 2006, and into 2007 is the commercial mortgage-backed security uh, industry uh, took over. And that's, these are ones that are not Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That is, these are private entities. Some of them are uh, life insurance companies or insurance companies. Uh, many of them are just like private banks. Uh, or any kind of investment that it's not Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are the semi-private, semi-government, the GSEs. Um, and they're buying up all these loans um, and selling them into the market. And that was a, a little more detail about commercial mortgage-backed mortgage securities. That A lot of times that includes like apartment buildings. Um, that... that um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac just don't, they don't buy those kinds of uh, mortgages that for whatever reason, just because it's sort of like they don't, uh, you know, it's multiple dwellings in a single building. Um, I think it also includes commercial real estate, uh, office buildings, things like that. Um, but what you see is that the, there's huge growth in commercial mortgage-backed securities. There's, I couldn't get details about like what kind of housing it was that was being bought up. But I tend to think that they must have been getting a, into a large part into the regular residential family home mortgages. And that uh, – or also refinance loans and things like that um, – and that's and again it like these right refi refinance loans that includes like the alt a loans uh which are which were called liar loans during the financial co collapse so you know because pe people were just lying all over about on their how much money they were making uh that you know, that you just they were f making up numbers so they could get a loan so they could get a house even though they were you know broke as a joke so But, I mean, an Alt-A loan is a refinance loan. Again, you don't really need a lot of paperwork to get a loan like that. It, you, if, I don't know what you – you could lie about some things, but if you do own a house, which is easily uh, – you're not going to be able to fake that part of it. The bank can look that up quite easily. Uh, there's, there's not much to lie about outside of that. And if you have that house, that's all they really need to know about. Um, so and they probably already have paperwork from your original mortgage on file or from a, at another bank. And so Alt A loans, one of these refinance loans that were considered at the heart of the financial crisis, these you know liar loans, uh, that is falls. IndyMac was a huge uh, proponent of them, and IndyMac is another sub story of the financial crisis. This is the bank that was taken over by Steven Mnuchin, turned into One West. Eventually sold off to CIT Group, which is confusing. CIT Group is not related to Citigroup 
or Citibank, um, that it's its own. It's a pretty substantial bank in itself, but it's definitely not as large as uh, Citigroup. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about IndyMac because uh, I've, I've written about it personally uh, just a number of times. Um, but it essentially there was a run on the bank. Uh, uh, Senator Schumer was sort of involved in that, sort of saying this bank does not have enough money to meet, uh, meet their debts. And there's a run on the bank. Uh, and there's you know, all these accusations that it was heavily invested in, in liar loans and alt-aid loans and things like that. Uh, and, but the liquidity crisis that it faced was fake. It was just like totally came out of nowhere. And it's actually, its loans were actually faring, faring relatively well. Um, so it's like, actually, no, he, here are the numbers for, um, just to jump around a little bit, about um, what kind of loans were being bought by the GSEs. And it was like vast majority were refinancing loans. Um, it's over, was it, it's like nine, $9 billion worth were uh, refinancing loans, whereas like between two to three billion were um, home purchases. And there's some other, uh, and this is, when I'm talking about home purchases, that's one to four family units. Um, and then there's some other like minor categories that aren't even uh, worth mentioning. But so just getting back to IndyMac, that just they have a run on their bank because everybody thinks these all day loans are nonsense or, or, you know, they're liar loans and it's all fraud and all that sort of stuff. But this is just kind of made out of thin air. It, all day loans uh, are not were not that risky. Um, it's just all like refinancing loans. And so that whole aspect of the financial crisis, that whole narrative doesn't make any sense. Um, so what what does that mean so okay yeah that these uh that the it's all kind of like a a fake run on the bank that was all you know kind of out of thin air that um that that and a lot of it was maybe created by these commercial mortgage backed securities which i could say that commercial mortgage backed securities have disappeared you you won't really hear about see big numbers on them nothing close to what you know Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac handout um and you kind of think that like well maybe it, it really seems like everything that was described about the mortgage-backed security industry that was they were handing out fake loans to people who couldn't pay them back and they're passing them around and cdos and all that sort of stuff that a lot of that was probably true of commercial mortgage-backed securities because if you know about what fannie mae and freddie mac do is that especially for you know, like home purchases uh ignore uh, refinance loans for right now, is that they have that access to government information to say, well, if you do, if you are trying to buy a house, I, we know how much money you actually make. We can, I can confirm that you say you make uh, you know, $80,000 a year. We have the IRS uh, paperwork to, that proves that. So we can put, give our stamp of approval that this loan is, is solid, um, we think this person, this person's making a decent amount of money. They can pay back their mortgage, um, and that makes the, the the market feel safe. Be like, okay, you know, this, this guy's actually making money. They are not a, a risky investment. I'll buy their mortgage and uh, you know get paid in X amount of interest every year, 
and and that'll be the underpinning of every ever every other aspect of the financial markets um, that you know these banks get invested in, and uh, but when a commercial entity does that, when it's just like some random bank that's saying I'll buy up uh, this I'll buy somebody's mortgage and wrap it in put it into a security and put into that into a CDO and then have a credit default swap that bets against it. Um, I don't really know if that guy was lying about their uh, loan or not. Uh, they could have totally faked it. And uh, that guy could totally, you know, if, if all those numbers were fake and this guy just actually doesn't make any money, then they could totally walk away from it, uh, walk away from their mortgage. The mortgage be, would, uh, they would have to foreclose on the house and um, it'd be a, just a giant mess. Uh, and then all of those mortgage-backed securities, those CDOs would collapse, and the credit default swaps would be worth something. Um, and I can see that happening with commercial mortgage-backed securities. There's, there's no check on any of that. That th There is a reason why you want sort of a, a regulated entity. I mean, maybe you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are doing certain things wrong, but... Uh, you kind of want a regulated entity to make to force them to be like you know do a due diligence on this mortgage before it's entered into the you know financial markets, um, and so and yeah and without that check yeah the whole uh, the whole system could fall apart. Um, uh, I mean I would say there's some questions about whether it actually did or there was all sort of a you know a fire drill or something like that. Uh, well. We'll get back to that in due time. Um, so how does this relate to ACORN? Is that, you know, the Association of Community Organi Organizations for Reform now, they had been lending, uh, lobbying on lending standards uh, for years. I mean, in fact, that's kind of the m main thing of what they did is that they, they pushed for standards that benefited lower income individuals uh, and supposedly, you know, and the critics say they, they encourage the bloated subprime market, that the, the, the borrowers that uh, who weren't going to pay back their loans. But another sort of uh, misunderstanding of the is that the whole idea that it was a subprime market uh, collapse is we don't know if that's I, I, I'm tempted to wonder if how much subprime lending was related to it, that. Um, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a, in a second. So, you know, so Acorn get, you know, has this, you know, Project Veritas exposes Acorn or tries to, pretends that they expose them. Um, but nothing really comes up in the video and, and, and they say like, we, we did nothing wrong. Uh, and there's nothing comes out of the video except house, uh, multiple house oversight committees, uh, would uh, produce reports on the organization. And what, what it did show is that Acorn wasn't giving, uh, you know, helping pimps and prostitutes get uh, illegal mortgages and subsidized mortgages with, you know, with illegal revenue. Um, uh, but instead, it was, it was essentially a, a, just a massive political operation that what they were doing was they were lobbying for all these, on these uh, low-income housing issues but they really weren't doing that much in the way of actually getting people into housing. So you kind of like some numbers and details on that is that, uh, well, in the report, they talk about that 
a they're you know going afoul of IRS rules on just on how much political activity they were doing. You know, if you're a you know 501c3, you can only uh, 501c4, you can only do x amount of political activity. If you're 501c3, you really can't do any. Um, and that they were sort of just they were running electoral campaigns. They were tied in at the hip with the uh, SEIU, the the labor union. That uh, says their affiliation with SEIU was seamless, uh, and that uh, they were heavily involved in electing uh, Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. I mean, they're essentially just like you know they're a political arm. Um, they're f- accused of falsifying voter registrations all over the place. There's a huge uh, scandal with that of uh, embezzlement. Um, and so, like, they're doing all of these things, and, like, who's – are they helping anybody get housing? In the middle of the financial crisis, did they help anybody get into their house, which is what they're supposed to do? I mean, because even if you're sort of critical – I mean, this is, you know, they, you, you can tell that there's this very left, liberal, union-aligned group. And, and But maybe if you're like, yes, there needs to be these, you know – restrictions uh, on banks and lending to make sure that people with low income can get into housing. But it seems like they weren't doing it. And, and to be honest, when I think about that, that Project Veritas video is maybe they're kind of making fun of them being like the reason why they're not helping people get into this housing is because they can't help people who are making, you know, uh, making money illicitly because no matter what, you got to file, uh, you know, if you're trying to get your a mortgage bought by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, you need to have that income. Uh, you you can't have a liar loan. You've got to have your income, some basis for your income, that's you know filed with the IRS, um, that proves that yes, you are making that money. Otherwise, Fran- Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac aren't going to give their stamp of approval. They're not going to buy that loan, and you're just not going to be able to get that loan from bank. But maybe a commercial mortgage back. Uh, uh, the private market might do that, um, and that would be very stupid of them to do that uh, because who's to say if you are making up that money, even, even if you're, you know, you're a powerful drug dealer, maybe you'll go to jail the next year and you won't be able to provide any of that income. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. That's all a bit of speculation about what was happening there, but I, I could see that being sort of the sort of wink and the nod that uh, – that, uh, Project Veritas investigation was doing, um, so and it, it goes it goes more in, beyond that about how Acorn sort of ties into the sort of financial crisis, is that uh, you know they were heavily involved in lobbying on home lending laws, particularly the Community Reinvestment Act, uh, and that you know a Community Reinvestment Act it goes back. I don't know how many decades. It's like the 70s or something like that. And that's like sort of that, the main law that says, you know, there need to be standards for banks to, say, to go out of their way to make sure that low-income people can buy a house. Uh, and that's uh, – I forget all the restrictions on it, you know, but I think there's like limits on interest rates that they can um, – uh, that they, they, they can give to somebody who's under a certain income um, – and it's it, it's a law that's been it gets uh, changed every X amount of years, but it's also got a, a lot of critics saying that you know, you know that uh, why should banks have to go this much out of their way for you know low income just sort of like let the market decide free market folks, and uh, but you you can also see that uh, you know why it's good to have that in place like if you know if there were no standard if you only made. $40,000 a year, 
maybe you just never would be able to buy a house anywhere if because the markets just would sort of not want to lend to you or they'd lend to you at a ridiculous interest rate and you know you'll never be able to build up a nest egg uh and therefore the market will just squeeze you dry and that's just just not right it's not in the public interest so you know but so that's sort of like both sides of sort of a, a, an assumption of how people who support and criticize the CRA. And uh, Acorn lobbied on it all over the place. They helped to get it reenacted. They just sort of, you know, they, that's their bread and butter right there. That's what they go for. Um, and during the financial crisis, they were accused of um, uh, that the Community Reinvestment Act was connected to subprime lending, that it sort of encouraged it. Uh, and that the sort of like these these standards for giving loans to low income people made them g- give out subprime loans to low income people, and those people couldn't pay back those loans. Those uh, loans collapsed. Yada yada yada. But financial crisis inquiry report, a pretty thorough report uh, um, uh, that had, following the financial crisis said their CRA loans were not involved in subprime lending or the crisis in general, uh, that subprime lenders were not subject to the CRA, that these are two separate groups, uh, and that subprime lending is essentially like what I, I tend to think of subprime lending is, you know, it's these high interest rates uh, or sort of interest-only loans where you're just not even paying off the principal, uh, and it's, you know, without, you know, for people who have not as good credit and that those are mainly used for people who are flipping houses, that people who are not like super rich, uh, but they're in the real estate market and they're buying up houses that they think are going to go up in value. And they're only holding it onto it for a sh- short amount of time before they can sell it. Because if you tried to holding onto that house with a high interest rate or an interest only loan, and you would just be throwing money away. Uh, you would lose money on the operation and, and yeah. And why would you live in that house if you're just, if it's just, uh, if it's sinking underneath you? Um, and research indicated that only 6% of uh, high cost loans, which are, uh, high cost loans being another name for subprime loans had any connection to the, uh, uh, community reinvestment act. Uh, another little detail about the community reinvestment act is that uh, Clinton administration was, um, uh, big a uh, big proponent of it when it uh, they made changes to it in 1995. And Acorn was not involved in subprime lending in general. They they were inve- involved in the Com- uh, Community Reinvestment Act, but not subprime lending. And they uh, reg- regularly advocated against subprime lending, uh, maybe because of its its use for uh, flipping houses. And they produced their own study in 2006 saying it's it had horrible effects on communities, um, things like that. Um, well, they are two separate categories that there is some overlap. There are some subprime loans that are CRA loans, but it's kind of a small sliver of both. Um, like maybe the, the way to remember it is subprime loans are for people with lower credit scores, while CRA loans are those with lower income. So yeah, some of the lower income folks can have low credit scores, but not necessarily like if you just make $40,000 a year and you pay your bills on time, that sort of thing, or you know, say $20,000 a year, just to make sure it's like low, low income. I don't know where the cutoff is. Um, you just pay your bills on time. Your credit is really good. Uh, 
but and you can make uh, but you can make five hundred thousand dollars a year, but you could just you know all your credit cards could be like overdrawn all over the place. Um, that would be like you'd be a, a that would that would get you a subprime loan, but you couldn't get a, a CRA loan. Sixty-seven percent of subprime borrowers were upper middle income. So there, there's a little detail to that that like the, the upper middle income folks who might be just borrowing temporarily just to flip houses that sort of thing. Uh, but so to say that you know that they're two, mainly two different categories. CRA loans are still risky. That uh, it's you know they're low income, and just because you have a low income and you, but you have, might have a good credit score doesn't mean bad things can't happen. You can't pay your uh, mortgage, that sort of thing. And they have high delinquency rates, sometimes uh, as high as thirty five percent, even though they're not considered subprime. Uh, and that uh, this is a report from the National Bureau of Economic Research showing that CRA loans were 15% more likely to be delinquent one year after origination, which is, that's a substantial amount. Um, and that one stipulation of the CRA is that, uh, you know, uh, some amount of a bank's loans should be directed towards affordable housing in various ways. There's a lot of details to that, but it's like, again, it's like low interest rates or low down payments. And if you don't have you don't adhere to that standard, they don't get fined. Uh, but uh, groups like Acorn could sue and reap the benefits. So this is another aspect of what Acorn was doing that seemed to be sort of tangentially r- around you know affordable housing, is that they were suing banks for not being l- lending enough to low 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 housing uh, borrowers, low income housing low income borrowers. Um, they could sue and they'd make a lot of money that way. And ostensibly they would put that money towards helping people get into housing. But as I mentioned before, they weren't really helping that many people get into housing. So it was just sort of like a cycle of like, they're just making money and just putting it into this political machine. That's ostensibly, uh, you know, helping, uh, you know, poor people out, but it's not really doing that much. It's just sort of a facade. I mean, they were probably helping out some folks, but uh, not that many. It, it, I'll, I'll get into the numbers about like just how little they were sort of doing that was benefiting anybody. Um, they would also like sort of funnel money into different organizations connected to them, their, their affiliate organizations. They would, uh, between 1993 and 2008, they received almost 40 million in funds from uh, home lending banks. Uh, and these are like major banks, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Citigroup. The list is goes on and on countrywide. Um, First American, New Century, and a lot of small banks too. Wells Fargo, Wachovia. That's an interesting one right there. And Phil Graham, who uh, author, the main author of the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act that enabled CDOs, was uh, critical of CRA agreements, that, uh, that these, these agreements between Acorn and the banks, that, uh, that he called it essentially like extortion, that... You know, Acorn would threaten to sue them for not giving enough low-income housing loans out. The banks would cough up some money to Acorn, and uh, and the bank would get like a good rating. So one of the things is that to do a lot of things, the banks have to do have like as part of the Community Reinvestment Act, they have to have a good rating from their community. 
And this is sort of this sort of like sort of semblance of an idea of like you know a bank has to be connected to their community. They have to have, be good people. They're not just trying to you know pillage. They're not just trying to like put out some shoddy loans, take as much money out, and just hit the and and leave town. And that um, the CRA essentially requires them that they have to have a good rating. Otherwise, they can't go into it, be mer- merged with another bank, that which is like maybe an escape. Like, oh, his bank just like sends out some crappy loans that get sold off somewhere, and then they just get bought up by another bank so that it covers up all of their, their tracks. Um, but they couldn't do that unless if they, had a, if they had a bad rating. And the bad rating came from these sort of local community groups like ACORN, um, uh, who would also criticize them for not, you know, not being diverse enough in their lending, that sort of thing. Um, and there's, there's a, a question about, like, uh, that whole process, about how uh, sort of maybe potentially corrupt it was. Again, uh, IndyMac slash OneWest, when uh, – and another note is that John Paulson was a, uh, a huge investor in OneWest, not just Steve Mnuchin um, – and that was accused of being a foreclosure machine. And California had this, uh, you know, they're about to take them down. Um, it, uh, and this was during um, Vice President K- uh, Kamala Harris's uh, tenure that uh, as um, Attorney General in California, that they had a lawsuit all ready to go to take down uh, One West, but they didn't pers- pursue it. Um, there's so there's just like tons of evidence that they were a foreclosure machine that they were just there to kick people out of their houses and take their take their uh, take the property over sell it and just make tons of money so you think like oh that's the the base definition of an abusive bank community is just uh, not going to be up in arms they're going to give them an f rating one one star or zero stars they're not going to be able to make a merger but uh, as I mentioned before, they did make a merger. They were bought out by CIT Group and uh, made a lot of money in the process. Um, and, you know, how was that possible? Like they had all these community groups uh, testify, but their tes- testimony was relatively popular, uh, positive, I mean. Uh, and the, my, the speculation there is that, that they, they bought off the community groups, the ones that testified, uh, you know, it's like um, – I, I forgot the names of the groups, but it, you kind of got to imagine that either they bought them or they, they chose the community groups that would testify uh, and avoided the ones that w- anybody who would complain that any complaints as there were in the attorney general's um, um, files, that there was p- plenty of complaints that would uh, shut them down from uh, being able to go through with the merger. So that whole aspect of the CRA that was supposed to happen there just, just um, you know, it's just like it, the CRA proved useless in that situation. So this, getting back to Bear Stearns is that in the years prior to the financial crisis, uh, CRA loans, not just us, and we're not talking subprime loans, we're talking CRA loans, all blew up that they it wasn't just subprime loans that were going crazy cra loans also went crazy um and bear stearns was heavily in, involved in cra loans that um and they were the first ones to offer a cra mortgage-backed security uh and with 
and and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were buying them up. Um, And what's funny about that is that like, you know, I remember there's a Stephen Colbert bit about like talking about mortgage-backed securities, about like the sort of description that was like, you know, it's like a multi-layer cake, but you know, some of those layers, there's a little bit of shit. (laughs) And there's, you know, he was talking about subprime loans, but it, maybe it was in truth was actually CRA loans that were the ones that were kind of garbage that they there's all this detail that they have a high um, default rate that a lot of foreclosures happen with them and that they were being uh, bundled up in all the mortgage backed securities and passed around and uh, and um, and and Fannie Mae was Fannie Mae was certainly buying them. Uh, because these are legitimate loans. Uh, it's just, and that while Fannie Mae is going to say like, oh, you do make this amount of money and things like that, uh, that that will get approved. But I mean, it's probably like, what, there's no detail about like why these loans collapse. Um, and there probably is somewhere out there. Um, I, at least I don't know what it is, but it's sort of saying like, oh, if you, you're not making a lot of money, um, there's other risks. You are you are making twenty thousand dollars a year, but things happen. You know, people lose jobs at sort of the lower income end of the spectrum. So, but there is risk in there. Um, so, so that's and Bear Stearns was like selling them and and putting them into the economy. They were this big booster of the CRA mortgage-backed security. Um, so, but getting back. Uh, to Acorn a little bit, they were receiving millions in government grants. Um, there's a, they don't file publicly uh, at 990 form. I couldn't find anything on that. Um, but uh, there's some reports showing that they were they got $42 million from housing and urban development between 2000 and 2009, an op- annual operating budget of $28 million, 10% of that coming from federal uh, sources. So that's you know, almost three million a year. Uh, a GAO report lists around forty-eight point four million government grants between th- two thousand five and two thousand nine. Uh, so the numbers are jumping around a little bit. I don't know which one is more reliable, um, but they were making a lot of money, and it doesn't seem like they were that big to sort of justify that much of an operating budget. I mean, they had locations in many uh, location uh, in many cities, but. Um, I don't know, $28 million. And, uh, and like, again, they weren't employing that many people that they were getting that many people into, uh, to housing. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions. It, if, if, if nothing else, like what, where's all that money going? Was it doing which money are, are those numbers accurate? Even who knows? Um, they may have been also saying, boosting their numbers, saying, oh, yeah, we're making gazillions of dollars. That's why you should give us more money, because we're a large, complex organization we, that we know how to run. Um, okay, their, their annual reports sort of deal more detail about, like, what they actually did. Uh, they, in 2006, they only helped about 1,234 homeowners refinance, refinance into affordable mortgages. That just doesn't seem like that much. Uh, if you're, you know, your operating budget is, um, if it is, you know, uh, $28 million a year and uh, you only help 1,200 people, 
I, at that point, why don't you just give that money to those uh, those homeowners at that point? You know, split up twenty eight million into to twelve hundred people, um, and you know that that might help them out a little bit. Um, in, in, by two thousand seven, they weren't even reporting how many uh, their homeowner assistance metrics uh, that they just stopped promoting that maybe they did help somebody but maybe they weren't that proud of it or maybe they had helped a lot of people they just don't want to talk about it i don't know um and that was in the middle of the foreclosure crisis all all these people are supposedly losing their homes and everything like that and acorn just wasn't there to help them um another detail i just sort of like how kind of little they were doing they tried selling their their list of donors or members um uh that it only, their California list of members only had a paltry 16,000 addresses and that only, you know, percentage of those are going to be like donors. Um, previously they had said a paid membership role of over 400,000 bringing it in $5 million a year. But like to get that close, they would have to have every other state would have to have the same number of members as California, which is the most populous state in the country and also a pretty left liberal one. So you'd have to have the same number of members in Texas, Oklahoma, Wyoming, uh, not particularly left liberal places. And, and most of them would have to be dues paying members. So just a lot of their numbers seem bogus. Um, and just the, what the takeaway is that like, yeah, they, these acorn was, so, you know, so, promoting the CRA uh, program and they're, you know, extorting the banks. Maybe extortion is a harsh word for it, but they're getting a lot of money from the banks, from the CRA to lobby for the CRA. All of it supposedly to help out low-income people, which it didn't seem like they were really doing. But what they were doing is, um, you know, encouraging these loans uh, of the CRA loans that were happening um, they were risky loans. They're, you know, the banks were, you know, uh, you know, forced to go out of the way to give these, you know, low-income loans uh, to people uh, that were high risk, and not just that, like, you know, giving them a good rates, you know, low down payments and things like that. But they're, you know, they're going. Chances, chances are, they were going to fall into foreclosure, and that. Uh, that just even even if you're sort of like you know people need to get into to be able to be, buy houses, even if you're making a, a, a small amount of money, um, the process seems like a giant mess. Like uh, that, it's uh, the financial system is sort of bending, uh, forced to bend to sort of give these folks mortgages. But in the end, uh, even with all of those, uh, you know low low interest you know low down payment it all it still doesn't work out you would think that the the point of the community reinvestment act is to sort of enable people to get loans that are stable and last that uh i mean maybe you know maybe you could argue that just needs to be even lower uh that like the interest rates need to be super low or that just monthly payments need to be low but something's failing there Uh, i mean it's just not working and that uh um and that uh, it's it's these, these people are getting foreclosed on. Uh, the banks are you know swallowing the losses, and it's not just the banks. It's these are again. This is all sort of the in- integral parts of the the U.S. economy. So everybody's invested in this. It's it's everybody's investments uh, sort of go down. Um, 
And I mean, you sort of say like, oh, who cares? Uh, investments. Uh, uh, these are people's houses. I mean, there's there seems like there's it's 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 losing on both sides. Like if these people are getting foreclosed on, uh, then that's not good for them either. And I would actually start to speculate about like exactly why are there's so many Community Reinvestment Act loans um, that are that are that are failing. Uh, what part of that process or are people intentionally uh, failing uh, on them? Or, you know, there's I, I could speculate a lot about like, well, if you had enough information you and you knew which Community, community Reinvestment Act uh, loans were actually pretty terrible, then you could track them, put together a collateralized debt obligation and bet against it with a credit default swap. And you might make a lot of money uh, just like Goldman did. Or, or um, uh, John Paulson did. Um, technically, I don't know how much Goldman made on it. They may not have made that much money themselves, but uh, Paulson absolutely did. So, Acorn, Bear Stearns. Uh, you know that's that's a that's it's a that's a tricky one. I, I feel like we'll probably have another episode solely about IndyMac and One West because I've written about it a lot about it myself already. I wrote about uh, a couple of things for Bloomberg BNA about it. Uh, that's just a whole riddle wrapped in enigma, wrapped in, <laughs> it's just, I, I would call it fraud. Uh, who knows? Uh, but it's a really interesting topic. Um, uh, uh, I'll watch out. I won't uh, make any blatant ac- accusations about things, but it's really interesting stuff. And uh, we'll talk about that in another episode. But uh, really hope you enjoy. Uh, more details to come. Financial crisis, uh, part three coming up. All right. Thanks again.